The year is 2040. Implanting computer chips into our brains is commonplace. The chips are capable of augmenting cognition for medical purposes or even simply to enhance one's IQ. In the future, if chipped individuals have next level, enhanced cognition, and thus a competitive advantage relative to their peers in the workplace, how might employment law respond? This is the first podcast in a series of articles and podcasts exploring computer brain interface technology and the impact that it may have on the workplace. In our first installment of this series, we are speaking with neuroscientist Graham Moffat. Graham will provide an overview of invasive and non-invasive computer brain interface technology. In our upcoming installments, we will take a deeper dive into the legal implications that may be associated with using future versions of this technology in the workplace. Graham Moffat has a PhD in neuroscience, a master's of science in neuroscience, behavior, and technology, and a bachelor's of science in physics. He works in the fields of neurotechnology, neuroscience, digital health, data science, and innovation policy. Graham is a senior fellow at the Monk School of Public Policy at the University of Toronto. He's also a co-founder and scientist with a neurotechnology startup called System2 Neurotechnology. I'm Christina Jarimas, and this is Future Employer. Hi, Graham. Thanks for being here. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. We've been hearing more and more in the news about the concept of computer brain interface type technology. Technology that can check human error in terms of safety and potentially enhance cognitive function. Our understanding is that this type of technology is or will manifest in invasive ways, such as via implant into the human body, and in non-invasive ways such as wearable technology. Let's start with wearable non-invasive technology. Can you explain what this kind of technology is and where we currently stand with it? Yeah. So there are a number of ways to slice neurotechnology and brain machine interface technology. And, you know, one of the most common ones or easiest ones is invasive versus non-invasive. So invasive, you would think of things like Elon Musk's Neuralink or, you know, some of the industries out there that make cochlear implants or deep brain stimulators. These are surgically implanted devices and it's a medical procedure. They're medical devices where there's a little bit more I think sort of flexibility in the application of the technology is when the devices are not implanted, they're wearable. So you can think of them as like a headband or a virtual reality headset. They can be really worn by anyone. And by measuring the physiological signals emanating from the brain, either through the scalp or through related proxy measures like uh, pupil diameter in the eye, you can infer some things about the behavior of the individual. So, or rather the brain state of the individual even. So you can tell, for example, whether someone is awake, very obviously, from physiological signals. And you can tell whether they're paying attention to something from physiological signals. And we seem to be getting better and better at that. So we're getting more refined in how we process the information, not just because the technology is getting better. Some of it has been around for a while, like electroencephalography, which is used in clinical settings in neurology departments, but it's becoming much more portable, but also because of machine learning and because of the scale of the data that's being acquired now. So we're seeing a significant expansion in the utility of these technologies, and they're now finding their way into things like workplace environments, educational environments, and expanded use cases. 
How accurate is this type of technology? It's a great question, and it really matters what you're able to measure and how well you're able to measure it. So signal quality is a big problem, which limits the use uh, or the applicability of the technology. You can think of it in terms of rather than, you know, people are afraid, I think, of of the, the concept of being able to read their thoughts, like, what am I thinking? And if you can image a brain and say, okay, this person is thinking about, you know, a blue hippopotamus, that that kind of resolution is not necessarily where we are yet with non-invasive technology. What we can do is we can tell whether or not, for example, someone is alert, whether they're fatigued, whether in the case of presenting individual stimuli, whether they recognize or don't recognize the stimulus. So you can probe attention, you can probe alertness, uh, and this has a lot of applications in a number of different environments, both inside and outside the workplace. What industries and workplaces do you see using this type of technology the most? So a lot of the applications for this kind of wearable, non-invasive neurotechnology have come out of military technology development. Uh, So you can think of sort of operational environments and, and optimum human performance. Fighter pilots would be a great example of this, or people in command and control centers in military operations. If you can, you know, detect whether or not someone's alertness level has dropped, then either a supervisor or superior or the machine itself can optimize its responses to prevent a decrement in performance or a dangerous action from being taken. That's now found its way outside of the military into other operational environments. So things like the operation of high-speed trains, of very expensive, dangerous equipment in mining operations, underground mining or open pit mining. We're already starting to see wearable neurotechnology in those kinds of environments where a misstep or an accident can lead to you know, significant loss of life or injury or significant loss of income or an operational shutdown lasting you know, an extended period of time and costing a company a lot of money. So we're seeing this in mining, we're seeing this in transportation, and I think we'll see it move into more and more applications from there. In China, for example, we're starting to see this move into factories and workplaces that you would more traditionally associate with lower risk applications than high risk operational environments. Do you see this type of technology moving outside of the arena of mining, dangerous machinery, or mass transit type jobs into a more traditional office space? And if so, how do you think it would be used in a more traditional office space or work environment? I think we can imagine seeing this move out of out into more traditional office environments and more traditional work environments. For example, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be attached to your head to be a neurotechnology. So you can tell a lot from the eyes of an individual user, how, how frequently, not just where their where eye gaze is going, which is what a lot of computer vision and uh, facial recognition and eye recognition technology, AI technology is applied to, but the diameter of the pupil as you get more refined and you know, the frequency of eye movement as a proxy measure for whether or not someone is paying attention or alert. So that can even be done with a webcam. And I think we're, we're going to see more and more of this, not necessarily as a control mechanism. You know, one of the ways that it might find its way into an office environment is to say, is to build in automated assistance programs, AI-based assistance programs for workers to say, hey, it looks like you're fatigued or you're a little distracted. Why don't you take a break or have another coffee or something like that? So you can, you can imagine these finding their way into more traditional office type work environments more as a performance augmentation tool or a a work improvement tool than as a mechanism of control that some people are afraid of. And I think that that's how it finds its way in ultimately. 
take us into the invasive or implant technology arena. Where does technology that can actually be implanted into the human brain currently stand? So right now, things are still very much in the medical space. Um, we're seeing pretty rapid improvements in the performance of implanted devices as prosthetics for people who have lost the use of, of certain parts of their body, either, you know, uh, paraplegics or communications devices for people who are suffering from locked-in syndrome, uh, for example. There, we're seeing more and more application in the medical sphere, and this is leading a number of people to speculate, and I think that this is not that far off, that there will be applications for healthy individuals for some of these technologies, for potentially for uh, augmentation of performance or augmentation of connectivity, you know, to be able to more rapidly communicate with uh, through technology or connect directly to the internet from your brain. So we're still probably five to 10 years away from seeing this widely deployed in healthy people, but it is, it does seem to be coming much faster than it seemed a few years ago. You know, the, eventually where we, we might end up, and you can, you can easily imagine where this would go, is that if the technology gets so good that, that performance increments are quite dramatic, then people might need to use this kind of technology to keep up and compete with, with others who have access to it. So um, if it's a real dramatic rise in, in worker performance or in educational performance, then this almost becomes a must-have uh, technology, an implanted device that improves performance. Thanks for tuning in. Join us next week for Graham's opinion on how this technology may evolve and transform the competitive landscape in the workplace. Then we'll talk to some of our legal experts about how the law may respond to these changes.